Mark chapter 11. I'm going to do my best to resist uh, re-preaching the whole thing, but I want to go back to verse 1 and just get a running start into this so that we uh, have things in context. Uh, verse 1 of Mark chapter 11 says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, we talked about how that was um, you know, house of unripe figs is uh, what Bethphage means. And Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you. As soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. We talked about the Lord's orchestration of things and how if we are obedient to him, uh, we get to experience the joy of seeing those things fulfilled in us and through us as, as we are in his will. Verse 4, so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door uh, outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? So, you know, it seems uh, like, uh, you know, the Lord uh, not only knew these things, but but maybe he did even have a prearrangement. You know, that's completely possible that, uh, you know, he had already spoken uh, to these and uh, uh, made these arrangements. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, verse 6. So they let them go and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, their outer garments, uh, their coats or cloaks, you might say, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, which literally means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. So uh, we have this uh, occasion uh, that is um, you know, described, and the church uh, historically, I just was uh, channel surfing uh, the radio last night on the way home and uh, heard uh, this preacher trying to make justifications for Good Friday. And, um, you know, I, I don't mind that if, if we celebrate Good Friday, whatever, um, uh, you know, we're celebrating the day uh, that uh, uh, Jesus um, was, uh, you know, um, crucified. But the, um, you know, the, the days and the weeks prior to, the, the people that try to misconstrue things and shuffle things around uh, to make them work, this is, uh, you know, a week before that, and we sometimes refer to this as Palm Sunday when we celebrate it, um, because they they cut down branches and laid them in the streets. And so we have these celebrations that honor this, what you know, is sometimes referred to as the Holy Week. Um, and I, I think it's very good that we go through the remembrance and, and we look at these things, but uh, when we put things in the wrong place and then insist that it's that way and then try to make the Scripture conform 
to our religious traditions, uh, you know, it, it ends up distorting the scripture, and then it can also make people reject the faith. Right? I mean, Jesus said that he would be in the tomb three days and three nights. Uh, well, if you if you put the crucifixion on Friday, uh, and the reason they do that is because they say, well, the next day was the Sabbath, right? Well, right, the next day is a Sabbath, but any day that the Jews uh, had a holy day of celebration was a Sabbath, and they were celebrating Passover. That's the Sabbath that they're referring to. Uh, so Jesus, we know, was resurrected on Sunday, right? Uh, so the church immediately begins to refer to it as the Lord's Day. So if you work backwards, right, because he's already out of the tomb Sunday morning, okay? So if you work backwards with Saturday night and then Saturday day, and then you go Friday night and Friday day, that's only two days that he was in the tomb. So, so when you insist, no, it was Good Friday. Well, really, Saturday day and night, Friday day and night, you go back to Thursday day and night. So he had to have been crucified probably on Wednesday. So, so you're probably looking at Good Wednesday, not Good Friday. Okay. Otherwise, you have to, oh, well, any portion of a day is... Is a day, that's what people do. So, you know, if it was Friday, then that's day one, and then Saturday is day two, and then Sundays, well, that's not three days. Well, we'll call it three days. You know, they do weird things. Look, I, it, I'm not going to be hyper legalistic about it, but the truth of the matter is, it probably wasn't Good Friday, okay? It was probably Good Wednesday. And, and the next day, Thursday, was the Sabbath that they were honoring of. Passover. And in fact, you know, since you brought it up, uh, you know, we've been able to track back and the week of Jesus' crucifixion that actually unfolded that way. So very often they had two Sabbaths within a week, which is simply days of holy remembrance where they took the day off and worshiped the Lord and celebrated whatever religious observation that they had. Here, you know, this the church has developed this concept of Palm Sunday. Wonderful concept. That's that's great. Really, you know, want to celebrate the idea of his triumphal entry, his coming into the city. Uh, I have given explanation before. I'll just, you know, if you want to make note of it mentally, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of Messiah, 173,880 days. March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gives the order to restore and rebuild the temple. 173,880 days later, April 6, 32 A.D., Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey right here. I, I just run through that. To, again, not my study. I'm just memorizing somebody else's careful observations. Point being that Jesus has over and over again said, can't make me the Messiah right now. I won't let you communist king it's not my day it's not my hour when his hour finally comes exactly what is supposed to happen happens he accomplishes exactly what is recorded in the word right to the moment that he is supposed to remember that in your own life 
that the things that the Lord has recorded in the Scripture that He's fulfilled so perfectly, He also has a very orchestrated plan for our lives. And and we get impatient and we get frantic and we think things should be happening at a different pace, faster or slower, right? God will sometimes shove us through the door and we're yelling, slow down, you know. Other times, you know, we're yelling, hurry up, and he's saying, not yet. His timing is perfect and he'll orchestrate it. If we will slow down and learn the patience of the Holy Spirit, then God will accomplish what he wants to in his time. And and we get to see those things fulfilled and we get to experience them. Here, everyone is celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming to save now. Hosanna is what they're saying. Now, terrible things happen to the nation of Israel after this. Uh, 70 AD, they're destroyed by Rome. It's siege and invasion. But salvation does come at this hour as they hail him as Messiah and then he is crucified a week later. The provision for salvation is accomplished. The, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's life is completed. As he even says from the cross, it is finished to tell us die, you know, meaning all of God's plan comes to that one poignant moment uh, where he gives up his spirit and dies. So salvation is indeed encapsulated in this moment, regardless of the fact that very challenging things unfold in history after this. Now, John records in chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, after these Things Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brothers, and this is what I want to get to, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, now think about what I just read. They're looking to kill Jesus Christ, and it's a known fact. And his brothers are saying, why don't you go to Judea, where the people want to kill you? Think about that. You know, when you're reading the book of James, and James says, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Clearly his attitude has changed. You're such a Messiah, why don't you go to Judea? where everybody is desiring to kill you. And, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, I have a, a very, uh, you know, organized plan. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here, go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things, if you're the Messiah, if you can really perform miracles, since you're such a prophet, there is such a tone of mockery in the voice of his brothers. Since you're such a big shot, why don't you go show yourself to the world? For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. It wasn't fear, right? It wasn't, well, there's a very intimidating, murderous crowd there. So I don't want to go there. 
which is what his brothers are implying. Oh, you're such a tough guy. You can perform miracles. You're like one of the prophets. Why don't you just go wade into those problems and prove to the world that you're the Savior? They, they were mocking him wholeheartedly. And Jesus is saying, not my time. We'll, we'll get to that uh, when it's an appropriate time. And he certainly does. Verse 10, back in Mark chapter 11, blesses the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the, in the highest. So this Hosanna that they're shouting, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. So uh, Matthew chapter 21 at verse 15 says, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying hosanna to the son of david they were indignant so the spiritual leadership is enraged with what uh, jesus is doing in this moment as he comes into jerusalem and allows himself to be declared the son of david the messiah you know the source of salvation for the nation of israel uh Luke chapter 19, uh, beginning at verse 41, says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation you didn't recognize right <clears throat> jesus later tells us that we are not like that you know when he says no man will know the hour of the day he backs that right up by saying but you are not so we can know the season that we are in. That's the point I'm making as we share communion together. Look around at what is happening in front of your eyes. Look, if the Lord is going to wait years for his return and his coming, understand this. What's happening right now is the precursory warning to what's coming. If people ever doubted, right, one world political system, one world religious system, one world money system. It is unfolding in front of our eyes right now. It, if God is going to be patient, Peter tells us that's so people can get saved, right? God is not slack concerning his promise, but he is, promised, but he is patient, not willing that any uh, would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He wants people to get saved. So while you can clearly identify these things, right? I always, you know, talk about spring, talk about fall. The leaves change colors. It's the warning. Winter is near. <laughs> you need to get ready. You know, if you put off splitting the wood, like get to work. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's time to prepare for the snowfall, which is coming to you. See the seasons changing. We're watching the seasons change. How quickly, how slowly are things going to develop? It needs to create in us an urgency, uh, right? It, it may be some time, but there are people to get saved. We need to cooperate with whatever amount of time the Lord has in front of us. 
to me, I look at it and I think it's got to be very short. It could be longer than we expect. But again, God's grace. Preach the word. Share. Invite people into the kingdom. Be a fool for Jesus. Open your mouth. Embarrass yourself in public. Talk to the people who are very anxious to hear right now. The world is hungry for our gospel message. You know, I have encouraged this congregation for decades now. Uh, when people say, you know, what is this world coming to? Quickly say an end. Just like drill that into your head. Have that cue card ready. What is this world coming to? An end. And when you can see the shock on the face, just start preaching. J just pour it out. Put question marks in their mind. Even if they're not going to interact with you. Say things like, you know, the Bible predicted this. You know, Jesus told us these things were going to happen. Let, let them. What? What are you talking about? They're trying to scan your groceries, and now you're, you know, sharing the gospel with them. Captive audience. Look for any opportunity you can. Jesus' heart is broken. He isn't saying, um, I'm here. This is your moment. You missed it. Stinks to be you. Right? He, he, his heart is wrenched with the fact he's crying, he's weeping over Jerusalem at this moment for what he knows is coming upon them. The Jews in their rebellion, Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, records as the mob stands before Pilate, and Pilate's giving them another opportunity to release Jesus. And he, Pilate's making the statement, I've, I've questioned this man, I've found no guilt in him, why is it that you want to crucify him? They answer, Matthew 27, 25, all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. What a horrible, and it truly came to pass as uh, they were destroyed by Rome. So you got to understand the heart of Jesus in this moment and the torment he's experiencing. And you also need to then, uh, you know, superimpose that on your own life that Jesus will try to intervene and he will try to reach out to you. And if you're going to continue on in it, uh, you know, when you're in wreck and ruin, don't turn around and act like, oh, why didn't you stop me? <laughs> the Lord, I'm sure, right? Most of us can testify to the fact that he was trying, pleading, warning, speaking to our hearts and minds, and we just bulldoze our way through all of those barriers that he puts in place. Back in Mark chapter 11, looking at verse 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now look, there are differences in the timing of how these days unfold between the Gospels. You read one account and... They have a different order of how those things happen. You read another account, they have a different order to how things happened. Uh, the critics look at that and say, so therefore, it's clearly all wrong. Okay, that, that the differences somehow prove that uh, you know it's a lie and not accurate and not worthy of our understanding. What the differences show us is that it is very accurate and that it's being recorded by different people. Their, their observation is different. Their recollection is different. 
is, is all that we have. And as we go through the Gospels, what you see is that certain people have more detail, other people have less detail. Others were first-hand witnesses, others compile, like Luke, their Gospel from interviewing a series of people. <clears throat> Police officers, when they... Uh, question people regarding circumstances that they have to investigate. They want there to be profound differences between the different witnesses' accounts of what happened. When they ask questions and everybody is lockstep answering identical, they assume, okay, this is fabricated. This is a made-up story. You know, they asked the first person, what happened? At 5.30, I arrived and exited my car. And as I walked across the street, I noticed the guy in, you know, blue jeans with a gray T-shirt and a brown baseball cap who was about six foot two. And then they asked the next person, and they're like, at 5.30, when I arrived and I walked across the street, I noticed a guy who's, you know, and brown baseball cap. And everything's the same. They're going, okay, these guys have worked out a story. They've, they've, they've cooperated together, and everybody's telling us the same thing. When they ask one person who was witness to it, and they've got a whole bunch of details, and then they ask the next person, and there are a few details in his account that match this guy's account, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And then they ask the next guy, and he doesn't have any of the first guy's details, but he's got a couple of the second guy's details and then a whole bunch of other information. See, they can put the whole picture together and come to an understanding, which is exactly what you're looking at in the Gospels. So in particular, when we get to this, what's called the Holy Week in these final transpiring moments, there are differences between the accounts. If you notice them, don't get all wiry about it. If you run into some critic who's trying to say, look, right, that's different, and then Mark's different than Luke, and John is different, and then it's all wrong, those are confirmations that these people observed the same thing, but they each had their own experiences in these settings. So here, Jesus went into the temple. He saw what was going on. The hour was late. So he, according to Mark, doesn't deal with anything in the moment. Right? He surveys what's going on, and he went out to Bethany. Now, Bethphage, in verse 1, house of unripe figs. Bethany, in the Greek, means house of welcome and house of figs. And if you're thinking, like, why all the detail? Well, we're going to see a fig tree here, and it's going to wither. So this has some significance in where they are. And what's going on? Fig trees in Israel are pretty amazing. Uh, olive trees in Israel are pretty amazing. Uh, we had opportunity to see olive trees that were more than 2,000 years old. So those olive trees were present and saw Jesus Christ's triumphal entry, and they're still there to this day. So it has a great significance to the people. Uh, Bethany, house of welcome, house of figs. This town was near Jerusalem at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's where Lazarus lived. 
along with his sister Mary and Martha, his sisters Mary and Martha, where Jesus stayed during this Holy Week before his crucifixion. So now in verse 12. The next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, that's significant, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, um, there are some oddities in the way that that's written, but how it unfolds is that there is a season for harvesting figs. And if you were to come to this tree in season, it would be full of leaves and full of figs. And they would be ripened and you would be able to easily knock them off and gather them up and eat them. Very, very sweet uh, fruit, very enjoyable. It's it's like finding a tree full of Snickers bars. It's crazy good, really, really cool when they are fresh Israeli figs in season ripened this way. There is a second growing season because their season is so long and so warm where the tree will leaf all over again. And the second harvest is very sparse. So you're going to find, you know, a couple handfuls of figs on the entire tree where before it's just laden and heavy with fruit in the first season, which is the regular season that this is referring to uh, when it says it was not the season for figs. The second season, if a tree isn't going to yield fruit, it usually doesn't yield leaves. So in that second phase, you'll see it from a distance and it'll look very sparse. And you can almost make the assumption of, if I took the time to go over there, I'd probably be clamoring around in that tree quite a bit just to find a couple of figs. It's, it's really not worth my time. If it's all leafed out in the second season, there's the implication of, hey, I bet we're going to find a bunch of figs there, not like during harvest, but we can certainly go over and maybe, you know, fill our pockets full. And they get there and there's nothing. Uh, the spiritual implication, which Jesus is going to talk about, is that idea that you know, a spiritual presentation of being fruitful and having no fruit for the Lord. You know, having, like those that he's going to rebuke here shortly, a, a certain appearance that is hypocritical, looking like you're very spiritual, looking like you're very religious, when in fact there is no fruit for the Lord uh, there in the moment. So he gets into more specifics of that, but as far as the physical experience that's what we're looking at the expectation of the latter harvest waiting there for them and they approach nothing he pronounces the curse upon the tree and they hear it so they came to jerusalem in verse 15 then jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves 
Um, we get a few different descriptions of two occasions where this happens. Jesus does this twice uh, in his ministry. Um, the temple grounds were divided uh, by courtyards in such a way that uh, working backwards, you have the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resided and the uh, statues and image of the the uh, cherubim that were overshadowing uh, the ark the, the mercy seat um, outside that is so that's the holy of holies outside that is in the temple you have the holy place where they would come in and offer incense and worship the lord and you had the um, uh, menorah there and you had the table of showbread Outside that, you had the outer court uh, where uh, the uh, priests would come in. Then outside that, you had the court of the Jews. And then outside that, you had the court of the Gentiles. Uh, where Jesus is, is in the court of the Gentiles. So uh, this is as close as a Gentile can come to the presence of the Lord. And what the religious leaders have done is turned it into a big market. And it's mostly focused around, um, they have other religious trinkets and items, but you hear even within this, it's mostly sacrifices is what is available. So it's, it's like a livestock market of sacrifices that are pre-approved by the priests for sacrifice. So so the racket, the criminal enterprise that is going on here is the priests have developed this market with a money-changing system in it. So you show up from wherever you came from, a short distance away or a long distance away with your little lamb that you're going to sacrifice. It has to be without spot, or blemish. So it can't have any defect from birth in it. It can't have any injury or illness from its life. And what the priests almost all of the time would do is take the animal that you brought, quick examination, and they would determine this is a flaw. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, they, they, they're most of the time they just make it hairs too curly legs too short, you know, something about it, they would say, this is flawed, we can't allow it uh, to be sacrificed. So then they would quickly uh, offer, and, and they had series of people that would do it. Sometimes it'd be the same person. Other times somebody would be right there to quickly help you with, well, you know, you can exchange your sacrifice for a pre-approved sacrifice so they give you pennies on the dollar right if your sacrifice i'm just making up numbers here but if your sacrifice is worth a hundred bucks uh they'd be like yeah well we'll give you like 10 bucks credit toward one of our sheep that's going to cost you a hundred dollars you're like well didn't want to but here take my sheep and i get 10 bucks off. I'm just throwing numbers around here, but this is essentially how the racket worked. And, and so where can I buy 
my uh, you know new sheep from the pre-approved bin. Oh, right over here, you go over there, and oh, well, all you have is that you know filthy Roman money. We don't accept that here. You'll have to go over there and see those money changers right over there. So you take your filthy Roman coins over to the money changers, and they're doing the same thing. They're like, uh, yeah, so uh, 10 cents on the dollar, you know. You give them a buck, and they're like, "Here's your dime, right?" So, so, so you're having to exchange your money for temple coin, and then go buy the sacrifice. These guys are making money every single angle that they can. Uh, in modern terminologies, the high priest uh, was a billionaire from this scam that they've got going on here. They are just raking the people over the coals uh, for everything that they can get out of them. Uh, Jesus' reaction is and not entirely from the corruption, right? Because this is supposed to be the place where the Gentiles can come and experience the worship of the Lord. And they've turned it into this massive event of thievery that has nothing to do obviously with worshiping the lord it isn't even just that like uh you know they've set up a fellowship hall in the room where the gentiles are supposed to be able to come to church it's a matter of you know they've set up a casino you know what i'm saying they, i mean it's just they, they got highway robbery going on inside the temple where the Gentiles are supposed to be able to experience the presence of the Lord. That's why Jesus flips his lid. Now, other accounts of this tell us that Jesus takes the time to braid a whip and drive the men out of this temple court in the moment. Everybody that looks at Jesus as being so meek and mild, Right? He also showed us fiery indignation at times. We also here recorded, uh, you know, here it says that he, you know, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The, the scripture records for us that he drove out the livestock, the herds, and the cattle, but the, he opened the cages of the doves and set them free. Okay, so he's not on just such a blind rampage that he's thrashing doves. I, I mean, a dove can't hardly handle any aggressive handling. They're a very fragile creature. If you were, you know, whipping doves cages around, uh, you'd have, you know, mostly a cage full of dead and broken doves is what you would have. He slows himself down. Flip over money changers table. Imagine Imagine the chaos that would create, right? You know, Jesus for sure at this point is labeled, you know, a domestic terrorist is, uh, you know, the, the label that Israeli Homeland Security would put on him at this point uh, for going in and flipping over money changers tables. I mean, imagine if you walked into a, a business, right? Because we can't even really say church, right? This isn't just the offering plate that's going around. This is a business. You walk into a bank and grab the teller's register and fling it across the bank and all the money, right? 
people are going to be there in short order with handcuffs. Jesus, Jesus is conducting himself in a way that by every earthly standard, don't be encouraged by this, it's criminal by everyone else's definition, right? Uh, the reason they can't do anything is because they're the ones breaking the law, and, and everyone was careful in their observation, right? Jesus wasn't flipping over the money changer's table and then, you know, helping them pick it up, right? Putting any of it in his pocket. He, he was there filled with indignation, interestingly enough, more than anything on behalf of the Gentiles. So that's interesting, right? Because it's their opportunity that's being stolen from them by this group. Of it's an organized crime we're talking about. This this group of thieves that are working uh, together, and then he says, it says in um, uh, verse sixteen, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. This this has become such a market bazaar that people are coming and going, and all of the religious items associated with. The temple, they're buying and selling and moving about. It's just a big market. And Jesus makes all of that stop. He halts the marketplace that is going on inside the court of the Gentiles. Verse 17, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Right? All nations. The Gentiles. Not just the Jews, he's standing in the court of the Gentiles. You know, isn't aren't all of the nations supposed to be able to come in here, gather in here, and worship the Lord? But you have made it a den of thieves. Yeah, he he hits the nail right on the head. This this is you know a bunch of baloney. This is a whole bunch of you guys making yourself rich. <clears throat> um, I wanted you know maybe I'm being like overly sensitive, but uh, I have been accused of having a den of thieves uh, in our church because we, we have a bookshelf out front and, um, you know, people are like, you're selling merchandise in the house of God. and just So uh, here's the deal. Uh, the bookshelf in our church has always been by donation, like whatever you can afford, if you can afford, if you want to afford, right? It's there as resource. Number one, but even if we were selling the books out front, um, it, it isn't by highway robbery. It's not to make ourselves wealthy and rich, right? It's it's to accommodate learning in the body of Christ. Some people get like overly sensitive about you know. Look, if you if you're selling T-shirts, uh, if you're you know. I don't know. I've been in churches where they're selling coffee, you know, to, to raise money for missionaries. To The Lord isn't forbidding that. Right? Uh, to have even merchandise is not forbidden. It's the concept uh, of the thievery that's going on here. Certainly we want to be careful of money and materialism and, you know, those things in the church. Uh, but you know don't don't take it we can sometimes get way too dogmatic about certain subjects and certain things you know i i know that when i was a young christian i was very very blessed by the bookstore at our church and uh, particularly the music 
that they were making available and all of the different bands that I was able to get and, and replace my, you know, hedonistic music and listen to uh, things that I enjoyed. That was a, a big ministry to me. So that, that was drawing me toward the Lord, right? It wasn't repulsing me away from him because of the uh, sin that is involved in this setting that we're talking about. Verse 18, the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. And just so we're clear, it's literally murder. Okay, this destroy is not like we got to ruin that guy's reputation. We need to, you know, put an end to his ministry. That's not what we're talking about. The, they have murderous plans that they're developing. So uh, they wanted to destroy him, uh, but they, you know, not able to, for they feared him, not because uh, of his um, boldness or his miraculous power, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So, so they're intimidated by the crowd that's following Jesus. So their only concern is offending the people that they're trying to take advantage of, right? If you know these, this large group of people are followers of Jesus. If we do something bad to Jesus, we won't be able to win those people back to ourselves. The whole thing is over jealousy. They're they're trying to uh, diminish Jesus and get the people back into their own flock. So the people were astonished when evening had come. He went out of the city. You're going to see that he does this where he avoids their wicked plans until the right moment. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as they come to arrest Jesus, uh, he asks them, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he uses the title of God that God gave Moses. He says, I am, and it knocks all of them to the ground. And just so we're clear, uh, a Roman cohort is more than 600 Roman soldiers. Uh, those guys were the Navy SEALs of their day. They were as lethal as you can possibly imagine. They also had a temple guard with them and some of the priests. So you're looking at 600 to 700 people that have showed up with clubs and torches and swords and Roman cohort, and Jesus flattens them to the ground uh, to prove, as you take me into custody, uh, I'm allowing you to take me into custody. It isn't because you've overpowered me or even outwitted me in the process. Here, he's maintaining control until the proper moment. Verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree which you cursed has withered. Um, this is the idea You've probably seen trees dried up from the roots. It's the idea of the roots have literally dried up and picked up out of the ground and the bark has begun to fall off. Certainly the leaves are all gone. Uh, this, this is the idea of there is a skeletized tree standing here. Yesterday, walked by full of leaves to the point where they thought, certainly that tree will have fruit. Jesus curses the tree. They walk by it again. 
uh, you know, seemingly somewhere around 24 hours later. And this thing looks like it's been dead for 10 years. It is completely gone in the process. There's a warning within that, that uh, you think about King Saul, first king of Israel, rebelling against God, refusing to kill uh, all of the Amalekites because the Amalekites wanted to destroy Israel. And then Samuel the prophet, when he confronts him, tells him, God has taken his spirit away from you. That is, that'll dry you up. That, that'll kill you in a moment. Uh, the Lord removing his spirit. We have the gracious assurance of the New Testament that, uh, you know, he will, and the Old Testament, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we all say amen. But here's the thing. We hear in the scripture, there are those who forsake the Lord. So, you know, that whole thing of, can you lose your salvation? And I would say the scripture insists, no, you cannot. Debate with me about that later if you think otherwise. But here is the concept. John tells us that the false teachers left Christianity. And he says, they went out from us because they never were of us. Had they been of us, they never would have departed from us. It's possible to deceive yourself and convince yourself you are part of the body of Christ. It's in the departing that the danger starts to become evident. right? I've talked to people who have literally said, well, I'm living in sin and I'm this way and that way, and you're right, I'm not where I should be with the Lord, but I'm a prodigal son. Really? So you've labeled yourself a prodigal son, and I quickly answer and say, well, I don't believe you. It is possible, but I don't believe you, because the prodigals come home. And if you're sitting here telling me, I know who my father is, you're saying I'm a prodigal son, so you thereby are identifying I know who my father is. If you know who your father is, then it's time to go home. There's a real danger in deceiving yourself, going out into the world and living and acting like, oh, eternal security. Where do you see that recorded in the scripture? That concept of praying a prayer one time, and then departing out to live in the world. Yes, the prodigal is a real uh, state of spiritual existence, but I, again, right, I've already stated it. It's very simple. Go home. Because living out here in the world the way that some people do, uh, you probably are just deceiving yourself. You at least have the very strong potential that that's all you're doing. And my goodness, you're literally talking about eternity being at stake. Surrender. Go home. Oh, some things i got to get straightened out. I'm a real mess right now. Uh, that's not how the Lord works. right? We don't clean ourselves up and then go to God. right? Even the prodigal went home filthy, right? In the clothes, he came right out of the pig pen with his father, says, bring a change of clothes. 
you know, implying bathe this one and let us have a feast. Return home. We don't clean ourselves up and then go home. We go home and our father cleans us up. Don't play in the world. That's a really, really dangerous game in those circumstances. So fruitfulness to the Lord. This tree is withered. Verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now, from there... People develop all kinds of false teachings. Health, wealth, and prosperity, you know. Did you guys see that Joel Olstein found his $600,000? Did you see that in the news? So 2017, uh, they thought it had been stolen. So they filed an insurance claim because their offerings are insured. Okay, They had already done the accounting where they come in and they count all of the money and they total all of the checks and they make the receipt out and they're going to take it to the bank. Okay, they, they literally have a Brinks company that comes to their church. So one offering, one service, just so we're clear on this, largest church in the world, apparently, from what we're able to study. Uh, uh, Joe Olstein took in in one service uh, 600 thousand dollars in one service uh so uh it went missing okay so they filed the insurance claim and the church was reimbursed for that but a plumber this past week uh was working on a toilet that was malfunctioning and noticed that there was a tile loose and in moving the tile envelopes began to fall out of the wall, they end up removing the toilet and the entire offering is hidden in the wall. Apparently all of it. It's been there since 2017. So I uh, don't know if uh, whoever put it there developed a conscience. Maybe they did it uh, just as, you know, sort of like, I don't know, a prank. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. Maybe they did it expecting to come back and were unable to. They got fired or they, you know, passed away or who knows why that was their point. Being, there are those that preach health, wealth, and prosperity based upon this verse. I want us to remember that Paul had the illness we've described a few times in this evening's study that he likened to a tent stake being driven through his body and asked the Lord three times to remove it. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay. The greater picture here is when you are aligned with the Lord and his Holy Spirit, then you will be praying things that are in accord with his spirit, right? I'm not going to be praying for a Lamborghini, cool as they are. You know, they'd be good in, in the winter around here, other than the ground clearance. They're four-wheel drive now. I don't know if you know that. Lamborghinis, all of them are now all-wheel drive. Okay, there's a, but anyway, right? Those are just stupid. 
right? What am I going to do? Get to church faster? You know, I just, I just, it's, it's a dumb concept, right? For me to even pray along those lines. There are many things that my flesh might want that the closer I am with the Lord, the more the Lord is just naturally teaching me, don't pray for that. <laughs> I'm not going to give you that. That doesn't line up with my will in any way, not even remotely. Ah, but the closer I am with the Lord, the more he speaks to me about, hey, pray for that person. Hey, pray for that marriage. Hey, pray for that person's health. Hey, pray for this ministry opportunity. Hey, pray for, and you know what? He answers those prayers. I am attuned to the correct messages more than I am not, right? Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm of the flesh. Then at times I think, wouldn't that be neat? And then later the Lord, no, that's not in my will, right? <clears throat> when you're a disciple who's walking with Jesus Christ and day-to-day -day seeing his ministry, you can pray, you know, Lord, my family's need right here. This situation in, in uh, ministry, that person, this, this need, even this physical thing that is needed, Lord, please, answer and he answers and he answers and he answers in those circumstances i i have you know had things even in the past week where uh, i was led of the lord uh, to do certain things and much like finding the colt tied exactly where it was supposed to be tied there was the lord's answer in those circumstances and i get to rejoice over knowing, hey, wow, the Lord was speaking to me, and I walked through those situations, and there was his provision on the other end. If we'll believe, it's hard, it's hard to believe in a thing that isn't aligned with the Lord's will, right? If you ask and believe, it's, it's really hard to pray for something and believe you're going to get it when it's of your flesh, when it's a sinful thing, right? That brother I just mentioned a little while ago, who was doubting of Jesus' ministry, right? James, who wrote the book of James, he is the one who said, you ask in prayer and do not receive because you ask amiss, incorrectly, is what he's saying, that you might spend it upon your lust, your flesh. Your request is coming straight from the flesh, so you're not going to get it. God is, as I've said many times, preventing you from having it because he, he thinks good of you and wants to bless you. So we shouldn't uh, change uh, Jesus Christ's definition here and turn it into something that doesn't align with his person and his personality, right? Uh, I guess I'll chase that rabbit trail for a moment. When Jesus, I've shared with us, and I'll just remind us, when Jesus said to them, I give you the keys to the kingdom, and I, I gave the explanation in that study of how the keys are like the keys on a map. That's what Jesus meant. He didn't mean, I'm going to give you this magical key, this mystical key, this spiritual key, or this physical key, and you'll be able to unlock things and open things and shut things and lock them up. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, I'm giving you the keys. That was a common teaching amongst the Jews who were being trained in ministry. And like on a map, you know, not that we use them much anymore. They're usually just GPS and you know, follow that whole thing. But the symbols on the map. Right, that show you, oh, this is a highway. You know, 
the, this this double blue line. That's a highway, and this is second. This is a dirt road, right? And you know, oh, and you know this thing with all these little lines. That's a railroad track, you know. And what's that? Oh, well, that's a campground. You know, you have these symbols down here in the corner, and here's the explanation. Now, as you look across the map, oh, okay, so that's actually you know that's a railroad track, and that's a bridge, and all these different symbols. They are the you got to look at the key, and then you can look at the map. And the key tells you what the symbols are on the map. Those are the keys Jesus was talking about. So that you, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. So when we know, right, James is saying, you, you don't receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it upon your lust. That's a key, right? So I have to take that key and overlay it on this verse right here that says pray anything you want and you're going to get it. Right? You can't go home and be like, Lord, I just need the winning lottery ticket. That's all I need. Just one. It doesn't even have to be the grand prize. You know, just I well, all I really need is fifty thousand $500,000, you know what I'm saying? Just I'm gonna buy this scratch ticket, Lord. Guide my choice, Father. You know, which one should I seven? I'll choose seven. Give me number seven, you know what I'm saying? I've watched people doing this silliness. Okay, the Lord knows you're going to ruin your life with $50,000. And you're not going to do any of what you think you're going to promise. And in fact, he's going to slam the door in your face, not of anger, not of hatred, so you'll learn to depend upon him. So you'll know he's your provider. So you can look back and go, wow. God has essentially given me $10,000, $50,000 over the past two years. He's taken care of me. God is my provider. Always. It isn't these things. Uh, so we need to take the keys of the kingdom and properly interpret these passages that we come across. Yes, you will be given the things that you need. Um, I... Uh, uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, I, well, I'll, I'll use this example. I've shared it before. Um, but uh, I, I had this old motorcycle and um, I, I just really, I bought it initially because it was uh, when the gas prices were like over $4 previously. And um, uh, I got an opportunity from a brother in the church. Uh, he was hard up for cash. I had just gotten tax returns, and um, I was able to pay him exactly what he had paid uh, for the motorcycle, uh, 800 bucks. I, I paid him $800 for the motorcycle. So that gave his family great relief, uh, you know, that, that that's the only thing they had money on, tied up in that they could, you know, part ways with. So I blessed his family, and now I get this motorcycle, and I go from, like, the 11 miles a gallon in, you know, our big truck, uh, to 40 miles a gallon on the motorcycle. And yeah, I like to ride motorcycle. And a lot of times I'm going like all the way into Bangor and back me alone in the truck. That was just stupid. Right. So, you know, I ride it for uh, two years and, uh, spring of the year's coming. And, um, I'm like, I, I should get the bike out. I should get going. I should, you know, it's, it's time. And, uh, uh, as I'm doing yard work, the Lord, like, I've never heard an audible voice, but in my heart and my mind, I'm hearing the Lord say, no, I want you to sell a motorcycle. And I'm thinking, like, no, that's, like, that's the wrong answer. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
like it's spring and soon I should be riding. Like that's that's what I should be doing. And as I work in the yard, this voice becomes more and more insistent of no, I want you to sell the motorcycle. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll just do it. Like I've I've wrestled with the Lord enough times in my life to know that's a bad idea. And now I know that it is, in fact, the Lord speaking to me. It's not just some weird thing. I'll sell the bike, right? So I put the bike out beside the road. Gas prices have gone way down by that point. <clears throat> and um, I uh, put the bike out. By my wife comes home like an hour later. It's like, so what's going on? You know, the motorcycle's out. So the Lord told me to sell the bike. And uh, I know she, you know, thinking I'm crazy. She didn't like the bike, but, you know. Like, they, okay, he's hearing from the Lord again, you know, saying just so, okay, the bike's up beside the road, and it hasn't been out there for a couple hours. And a neighbor stops in, and uh, I, I knew him to be a Christian brother, and I strike up the conversation from that end. And uh, he said, How much do you want for the mo motorcycle? And I said, Well, you know, I paid 800 for it. Perfect. And, and I'll, you know, I'll pay you $800 for the motorcycle. And so then I'm just like, well, that's like an answer to that. So, you know, he's gone to his house and come back. But as he comes back, he's, he's saying, you don't understand uh, what a blessing uh, this is. Uh, I was literally driving home uh, the three hour ride. It is for me to commute to work, praying that the Lord would give me a vehicle that was more fuel efficient than my pickup truck because I'm doing six hours of travel a day right now in that pickup truck where, you know, he said, I'm getting like 11 miles to the gallon, just like I was. Right. So uh, I sell him the motorcycle and now I got $800 cash. And, and then instantly I'm like, okay, so now what am I going to spend 800 bucks on? You know what I'm saying? I got, I got all that going on. And the Lord says, no, you wait. And, uh, the very next day, uh, my wife comes to me and says, the washing machine is like pouring water out of the bottom. And uh, I'm like, oh, man, the drum is gone. I know it. And uh, so, you know, nothing else wrong. I'm just thinking like that, that drum is punctured. And uh, so I go look and do a little bit of tearing apart. And there's uh, it's a front loader. Not that you care, but there's a plastic drum all the way around. And where I had been doing work, a drywall screw had gone out through the hole and gone all the way around and cut the, the drum in half. So there's like no, it's repair. So I'm like, oh, you know, I wonder what this is going to cost. So I look up and to repair the drum, the way this washing machine is designed, you have to tear it all the way down to its base to get the drum out. The drum is 350 bucks. The repair is 350 bucks, right? $700 for that machine. I make the decision. I, I have a, an appliance repair guy come out and he confirms all of that. I make the decision that I'm going to buy a different style. We're not going to deal with this. Again, I go to the store. Lord gives me a great deal, and I'm able to buy the washing machine my wife wanted originally, top loader, all this stuff. There's a point to all of this. Stay with me. Okay, <clears throat> so now we've got the new washing machine and enough money. I took my wife out to dinner. 
So get my wife a washing machine. So then from that point on, I referred to uh, my motorcycle as a Maytag. You know what I'm saying? So we had a new washing machine, and I took my wife out to dinner. <clears throat> a little more than a year later, uh, the dryer breaks down. Okay? Now, uh, the deal is uh, that uh, we had an old RCA dryer that I had rebuilt like we we got that thing in like 1992 and I had rebuilt it like over and over again and spare parts and you know gone to the junkyard and just you know it's a Frankenstein dryer is is what the thing is and now it's cooked you know burnt a whole big section out of it and just like you know it needs to be thrown away and get a, a new dryer but here's the deal uh two days before the dryer blows up i get a check in the mail from the united states government that's odd within itself uh but the summary of this is uh you overpaid on your taxes and we noticed it so we are sending you this check sorry you know you, you know how often the government does that right finds your error in your favor and gives it back to you. So I get the check and the Lord says, don't spend that. You're going to need it. So dryer breaks down and I'm like, well, check goes to dryer. This makes sense. And I just happen to pile my daughters into the truck and we go over to Home Depot and I walk in and there's the matching dryer to the Maytag washing machine I bought previously for my wife, right? And I'm like, well, we want this one. They do a whole bunch of hunting around and come back to say, well, we can't sell it to you because the only model we have is this floor model right here. I mean, unless you wanted the floor model, you know, a little scuffed up, got a ding in the side, so if you'll take the floor model, we'll give it to you and we won't even charge you tax. And I'm like, great. So I look at the price without tax and it's the exact same amount as the check from the government to the penny. And I call my daughters over and say, look at this. And I just set the check right next to the price tag and say, this dryer is going to cost me this much money. And they're like, no way. And we are able to load it up and take it home that night and hook it up and matching dryer. It essentially, you know, didn't cost me. I guess it cost me, right? I, I had been paying into the government and putting things in savings I didn't even know I was putting into savings. When the Lord tells us, right, I'll move mountains out of the way, move a whole government out of the way. Right, Give you what you need in the moment. Orchestrate the circumstances. Make sure you have what you need. I could go on and on and on with all of the different ways I've seen in my walk with the Lord, where the Lord was way ahead of me. You know, moving mountains. You got time for one more? Okay. Some of you have heard it before. Um, <clears throat> young family. I have wife, daughter. I'm trying to follow the Lord of my life, leave a sinful way of living behind. And uh, I go to church. Uh, I, 
I'm at a prayer meeting. I had just gotten my license back. Um, you know, criminal activity, they had taken it away. I had finally restored it. So I just get my license back, but I got no car. I'm making $188 a week trying to take care of wife and daughter. And uh, this guy, Paul Smitherman, in the prayer meeting says, man, I see you at every church service. You're so faithful here. I see you with your young family. you got wife and daughter, but I see you guys walking everywhere you go. Man, I saw you in town walking around, you know, going to the grocery store. Do you guys not have a car? And I say, well, I just got my license back, and I don't have a car, and I don't have the money to get a car. He says, well, listen, I got this old piece of junk, uh, this Chevy Impala, which we eventually nicknamed it the Chevy Impaler. You know, it was it was in that bad of shape. You'd be driving this car, and like in the rain, if you were going to hit a puddle, you had to slam both your feet down on the floor mat so the water wouldn't fly up and hit you in the face. You know, it's like that kind. It's a holy car. So, um, you know, we uh, Paul says, "I'll give you that car." Uh, so, wow, incredible, man! He gives us the car. I go get it. You know, uh, it's already inspected. I get it registered and, and instantly, like, this is a big deal for our family. We're able to, you know, drive ourselves to the grocery store and the laundromat. And life changes for us. So um, it's like a year later and I get pulled over in the middle of the night and the cop says, hey, like, are you aware you have no taillights on the back of this car? Like, it's just black, like no brake lights, no, no running lights, no nothing. Like the back of your car is black. And I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. So he, he says, if you're just going over onto the day road here, just drive this home and, and promise me you're not going to drive it until that's fixed. You know, I'm like, okay. So I park it. A friend looks at it and he's like, well, you know, your whole wiring harness is severed. So we would have to replace the wiring harness, you know, from the front of the car. Oh, it's going to cost you like 700 bucks. Uh, just, and he was going to do work for free to get the new harness is going to cost you that much money. So clearly you don't put 700 bucks into the Chevy, 1977 Chevy Impaler, right? You get rid of it. So, um, I dig the mountain bike out of the, the, uh, you know, the shed and, uh, we pray together, Lord, like take care of us. We need another car, uh, make it possible sort of prayer and I leave and I drive to my job, I ride to my job on my mountain bike. And as I'm riding through downtown Bangor, I hear this voice call my name behind me and I turn around and it's Paul Smitherman, the guy who gave me that car. And he says, man, what are you doing riding the mountain bike? And I say, well, the Impala, you know, severed wiring harness and, you know, I had to junk it. And he's like, yeah, that makes sense. But hey, listen, uh, he pulls out this piece of paper. You need to call this guy, Rudy, a friend of mine. Right now, here's his phone number. You need to call him right now. He, he's got this cool little Subaru, and uh, he wants to sell it. And, and you need to call Like, don't like make the mistake. I'm telling you, uh, he, he's trying to move, and they're trying to get rid of this car. And you need to go see Rudy about this car today. And I'm like, okay, fine. I go to work. And my boss was like, why are you on the mountain bike? Oh, the car's broken down. But I saw Paul Smitherman, and he told me about this Subaru. He's a Christian also, my boss. We should go see that guy right now. And I say, well, you know, I, I basically, I've got $350 to my name is what I've got right now. So, you know, I, how am I going to buy a car? We, we, they're Christians. Uh, this is of the Lord. We need to go see them. I drive over. 
uh, to the house. We pull in the yard and immediately I'm like, uh, that's like a, you know, $800 car, man. It just perfect condition. You know, I get closer to it. It's, it's got like the little rubber knobbies on the brand new tires on it. Right. You know, I'm like looking underneath the stickers are still on the exhaust system. There's no rust on this car. It's got a beautiful stereo system, you know, sunroof, power windows. I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, up to like twelve, fifteen hundred dollars in my mind for this car. So I'm trying to work up like, thank you very much for meeting me, but I can't buy this car, right? Because I got three hundred fifty bucks. So they come out, and the wife, it's her car. She's got this big folder like this. And she, she's got a, a name for the car, you know, is that like, right? She, one owner. Yeah, I bought blue when I was in college, you know, and she starts with this history. It's had every oil change, every serviced maintenance. This car is in perfect condition. And now I'm just like, oh, this is going to be like two grand. I'm so embarrassed to even be sitting in this chair. And, you know, she brings me right up to, you know, and we just put a brand new exhaust on it. And those are four new tires. And we redid the brakes. And, 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 you know, I'm totally embarrassed. And she says, so really what we need for the car is $300. And I'm like, what? Like, like, okay, so, like, you've been doing, like, drug transportation with it? Or is there a dead body I need to know about? Or what are we talking about? Oh, no, no. She explains, <clears throat> I went to school for radar communications. Who does that? You know, uh, anyway, I'm a specialist when it comes to radio signals and in particular radar. And I'm contracted with the United States government to take care of backscatter radar systems. And so I maintain the one here at Bangor International Airport. And in case you're wondering, backscatter radar systems are radar systems that communicate with satellites so that they can look around the curvature of the Earth for incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles. Okay? So they can see nuclear threats from the other side of the globe. Okay? This is what she does. And then she explains to me, yeah, so the two systems that I've been taking care of are this one here in Bangor and the one at Andrews Air Force Base in the Philippines. And two days ago, Mount Pinatubo erupted and buried Andrews Air Force Base under 21 feet of rock. So I'm no longer working there. So they've restationed me to Washington, and they're going to fly me back and forth. My primary concern is going to be Washington, and my secondary is going to be here in Bangor. So I have to be in Washington in two days. So we're selling off everything we can in order to get there. And that car is one of the things. And we just put $300 into the tires and the exhaust system. So if you can give us 300 bucks, we'll sell you the car right now. So I take the $300 and pay for the car and I take 50 in registration and insurance. And I'm like driving home two hours later in this car. My wife doesn't even know that I have it. I just drive home with this new super. Now here's the deal. You guys, the way I look at that, I know that terrible things happened in the volcanic eruption, right? But the way I look at that, when I'm in need and I pray 
God is willing to blow up a mountain and bury an Air Force base in order to make sure that I get a car. So you need to trust what the Lord is saying, right? I've, I've also been through incredible hardships, right? I don't walk around just saying, oh, God, give me whatever I want, and a mountain lands on my nearest problem or blows up from my nearest problem. I've also had to learn how to walk through, right? Many of you know, I just, uh, since December of 2018, I've been dealing with chronic illness. You know, in a way, I'm praying like, Paul, take this away. And the Lord is just over and over again saying, no, my grace is sufficient for you. We can trust what the Lord is saying in the scripture. You, you know, sometimes you read it and you think, well, that's sort of like an exaggerated thing so that, I can maybe get the bigness concept of God. No, it can be a literal thing where God will literally step through into your circumstances and take care of you. Uh, what Jesus promises in, in the scripture, we need to trust and trust it wholeheartedly. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick up there uh, next week. Will you stand with me and we'll pray? Let's be clear about another thing, right? I'm no more special than you are. I struggle with the same junk as everybody else. God is watching you. Um, you know, uh, I keep going on and on. Forgive me. Uh, this will be my last of five closings. So uh, Steve Fluke uh, runs the Way of Escape meetings, and he's been struggling with his health, right? So he couldn't be here Friday night. I came over, uh, introduced Josh Lawrence, who did the presentation. And I went out front and turned on uh, Facebook so I could watch it. And while I'm sitting there, uh, the Lord is speaking to my heart and mind. And I start reading. The Lord leads me to start reading from Isaiah chapter 41. And I, I'm just pouring through in Isaiah 41.10. Let's talk about how the Lord is watching and loves us and is very supportive of us and wants to care for us. And the Lord says to me right there in the moment, I want you to send that to Steve Fluke right now, right? You know, he's suffering in a way that I've been suffering with physical problems. And I thought, yeah, man, that nails it on the head. So I text that up to Steve and I, I send it off. I had no idea that he and his wife both have a very strong history with that verse and the Lord speaking to them from that verse. So here he is at home feeling all down because he wants to be here, wants to be running the way of escape meeting. Instead, his pastor's having to fill in for him and he's watching on Facebook and bang, he gets the text. The point I made to him was, that's not how awesome I am. Like I'm not so spiritual and supernatural that I just got to, that's how much our heavenly father is watching us. He's got his eye right on us. And he knows exactly what verse we need to hear. He knows exactly what message we need to receive. And, and you don't turn around and get impressed with the messenger, right? You get impressed with the one who sent the message, which is our Heavenly Father, which is the Holy Spirit. So you need to be impressed with Jesus and what he's promising us right here. That when we're attuned to him and his Holy Spirit, you can ask what you need and he'll be faithful to supply it. Amen?
Amen. Father, we again are very, very grateful for your love, your graciousness, your provision, your work, your heart, all that you do, all that you are. Lord, help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you. Teach us, cause us to grow. Lead us into the things you want us to be. Lord, I had forgotten to pray for Pat's brother who has been in this bad accident in Philadelphia. Please preserve him, protect him, restore his health. See him through those circumstances. Minister to Pat, Lord, help him to trust you for the healing of his brother. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.